<clears throat> Hello, everybody. Good morning. Lovely to see you. My name's Sue. I'm a part of the Ebby family for a long time. <laughs> um, so uh, to, to get us started this morning, I thought it'd be a really good idea to read the brief that I've been given, because um, then you'll know where we're headed. So it says, we can get a bit comfortable and familiar with the stories we read about Jesus in the Bible. Who Jesus is and what he has done can trip off the tongue very easily. And we forget the crazy, unexpected, world-shaking and life-changing impact of Jesus' life here on earth. How do we rediscover the awesomeness of Jesus? How does his life 2,000 plus years ago shape ours today? Can we find space in our busy, hard to impress, easily accessible world to experience the wonder of Jesus? Let's find out. Yes, let's. Let's do this. Now, for starters, perhaps the most important question anyone could ever ask is, who is Jesus? And I'm guessing that you're here today because you've already asked that question and you found the answer, or you are asking that question and you're seeking an answer. I didn't come from any kind of religious background. Um, my parents, lovely people, but absolutely no interest whatsoever in faith. So religion, church stuff was never discussed at home. Um, the extent of my religious education was about age eight when my mum told me, God made the world, but he has nothing whatsoever to do with it anymore. And I accepted that. That seemed a perfectly logical explanation to me. Until I was about 17, when, like most teenagers, I started asking the bigger questions in life. Like, um, why am I on this planet? Is there more to life than um, eating, sleeping, earning money, and then spending money, and then repeating all that over again? Um, and at that time, I was doing my A-levels, and I had a particularly interesting English teacher. Now, she loved to challenge us. She described herself as an anarchist, and um, <laughs> she was quite a lady. And uh, I remember she would give us lots of different literature to read, and, and she was always challenging us. And her, her, what she really wanted to do was to shake us out of what we thought we knew and to start forming our own opinions and um, explore um, philosophies and um, ideologies, and just, just so that um, we weren't just stuck in our, what she called, middle-class rut. <laughs> um, I, I can remember one weekend, for example, she gave me um, the little red book, the, the Communist Manifesto, to read. Um, and an, another time I came into her classroom and she rounded on me and she shouted, What is reality? <laughs> I didn't have a clue. <laughs> but I wanted to know. I was really open to finding out. I wanted to know if there was something more than materialism that we were living for. But... The more I read and the more I thought about it, the more there was, it seemed to be this elephant in the room. That I knew enough about my human nature and the people around me to have noticed that we were basically selfish. That when push comes to shove, all we care about is us. And so because of that, I was thinking, well, these noble ideologies, they're great in theory, but I can't see that they would ever work. 
Um, so I kind of parked my quest for a greater meaning in life, or so I thought. Enter God, stage left. <laughs> I had no intention of looking at anything to do with faith. No intention whatsoever. Didn't even enter my mind. But one day I was uh, writing and rewriting my essays. Now this was back in the day when we didn't have computers and everything had to be handwritten with quill and ink. <laughs> and there were no digital distractions. I mean, there were three channels on the telly sometimes. So, so, you know, there was nothing to do when you were bored. You were bored. And I was bored. So I thought my head was going to explode with boredom. So I just reached out to my bookshelf and grabbed the first book there, just for a bit of light relief. This is where things got weird. Because the book that I grabbed was a Bible. Now, this was a Gideon's New Testament that somebody had given my brother at school, and he didn't want it, so he'd put it on my bookshelf. And there it was in my hand, so I was so bored, I started reading it. And as I read it, I was reading about Jesus, and I was captivated. I was thinking, wow, this man, he's going around doing good, he's healing, he's so brave, he's so selfless. This is the kind of life that I would love to live, and this man is living it. I was so intrigued. So every night that night, after I got home from school, I would read the Bible. I didn't tell anybody, because I didn't want to freak anybody out. And um, I was freaking myself out a bit, because I was becoming so intense, and it wasn't like me. Um, and by the end of the week, I was actually hearing voices. And I was hearing, it's true, believe it. But I was also hearing, it's a load of rubbish. You don't want to become one of those Christians. They're weirdos. That would be social suicide. <laughs> so I, I had this conflict, and I really thought I was going crazy. I didn't want to tell anybody. So I, that, at the end of that week, I just knelt down by my bed, and I said, God, I know you're out there, but who is Jesus? Now, the next day, I went to school as normal. Now, no one knew that I'd been reading the Bible. No one knew that I'd asked God, who is Jesus? But a girl came up to me in the sixth form locker room and she said, Sue, would you put your name in my birthday book? So I thought, yeah, okay. So I opened this sort of diary thing um, and wrote my name on my birth date. And as I wrote my name, I looked above my name and it was written, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, yeah, so that was, that was quite a, an experience for me. That, at that point, I knew that God had heard my prayer and that Jesus was real and was actually talking to me. And from that point on, I decided that I was going to identify as a Jesus follower, much to the absolute mortification of my English teacher. <laughs> Now, I thought it'd be appropriate to, to uh, share that. I, I sort of took a bit of extra time to do that because, as I say, the most important thing that we can do is, um, is ask, who is Jesus? And in our passage today, that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They've been following Jesus for quite a long time. They'd, be, they'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him stand up to the religious authorities. They'd seen him stand up for the oppressed They'd seen him do all kinds of amazing things. Um, 
and yet they were still doubting. Who is he? They were still asking, is this, is this really the Messiah? Um, and in our passage today, we'll see that they're about to have their minds blown because they realize that not only is he the Messiah, but he's God himself. So we're going to be reading from Mark 9, 2 to 15. If we could have our first slide, Rebecca, I'll kind of wave to you every time I need a slide. Um, the, the, um, the account of the transfiguration, as it's called, is in Luke and Matthew and Mark. We're going to be following in, in Mark mostly today. So here we go. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they, saw, they, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant, and they asked him, well, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. So let's take a closer look at what's going on here. And I'll try to uh, make it clear. Um, and then we're going to look at why it's relevant to us. So let's stick with this a minute. Um, first of all, I find it interesting that it was just three of the disciples who were singled out uh, for this extra level of revelation. It was three of Jesus' closest disciples. Now, maybe this was because of the things that they would face later on. Um, the, the clearer the call, the harder... Sorry, the, what do they say? The harder the call, the clearer the calling, maybe. Um, or maybe it was because, because they were closer to Jesus, they were ready for that extra level of revelation. Now, either way, they were the privileged few. But thanks to the Bible, we get a window into what happened here. And it's clearly something that God wants us to learn from. We're told it was a high mountain. A lot of significant events in the Bible happen on mountains. It's a climactic setting, the highest stage. And this account of the transfiguration is the pivotal point of the revelation of Jesus in Mark's Gospel. Also, the fact that the mountain is not actually named in any of the Gospels suggests it has a symbolic significance for us. Um, like the high place that's difficult to get to, 
um, a place of higher revelation that needs a bit of extra effort. And that's often, I think, because God doesn't force himself on anyone. But he generally reveals himself to those who are wanting to journey with him or seeking him in some way. And as salvation works in us, it's an onward and upward process of ongoing change in our thinking and in our behavior. And then there's the main event. We're told he was transfigured before them. Now, transfigured, apparently, in the Greek is metamorpho, which is a familiar term to us as metamorphosis, from the changing of a caterpillar into a butterfly. But in this instance, Jesus' appearance changed from a human being into a divine being. Suddenly, his glory, the tangible expression of God, became visible. We're told his clothes became dazzling white. In the parallel account in Matthew, we're told his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And in Luke, we read, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now, this would have rung bells for the disciples because as Jews, they would have been taught about the prophet Daniel's vision of God himself. Could I have the next slide, please, Rebecca? Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. So such dazzling glory was associated with God alone. And in this same vision in Daniel... He says that he sees someone he describes as like a son of man being led into the very presence of God. Now, the son of man was a term that Jesus used to describe himself to his disciples. So at this point, the disciples must have been absolutely quaking as Jesus' divinity became absolutely clear to them. He certainly told them that he was one with his father, but this was the first time he'd taken away his human covering and literally dazzled them with his true identity as God. Now, I can imagine the disciples were a bit like moths drawn to the light, absolutely fixated with his beauty, but at the same time being absolutely terrified that they would be frazzled. And then we're told that Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with Jesus. Now, I wondered how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, because they wouldn't have seen pictures. So, could we have the next one, please? I, I googled them for your benefit. So we have, so apparently that's what Moses looked like, <laughs> or not. <laughs> He's probably looking down, laughing at that one. And, uh, and then there is Elijah. There we are, Elijah. Um, but whether... Whether they recognized them or not, I expect Jesus was calling them by name. But also, apparently, Luke tells us what they were actually talking about, which would have singled them out. Because what they were talking about was Jesus' departure. And the word was exodus. They were talking to Jesus about his exodus coming soon in Jerusalem. And, of course, Moses had his own very special exodus. He, le he led the, um, the Israelites out of slavery into freedom in the promised land. And there a picture of um, God leading his people out of the slavery of sin 
into the freedom of life with him. So that was Moses' exodus, and Elijah had a pretty spectacular exodus because he didn't actually die. He was transported in a chariot of fire up to heaven. But what's interesting is they weren't talking um, about their exoduses. They were talking to Jesus about his exodus, that he was going to leave this earth and the way he was going to do it. And that shows that Jesus' exodus was going to supersede these. So Jesus' departure, his death on the cross, was going to be the new high point in God's plan to redeem his people, to rescue them from the slavery to freedom. Um, So that's pretty significant for us, as we're going to see. Um, Now, but at the time, obviously, we've got the benefit of of the Bible, and we know about a lot of these um, explanations, but at the time, the the disciples wouldn't have a scooby-doo about what was going on, and they were just looking on, thinking, what? Um, And in true Peter style, he blurted out something, trying to be helpful and proactive, as we often are, and he suggested that, um, that he build some shelters for them. Peter didn't know what he was saying, but he obviously sensed that this was a new level of revelation that he wanted to hang on to, but he just didn't know how to do it. Um, it was then that a no doubt terrifying crescendo when God's voice came from the cloud. Now, the cloud is a tangible expression of the Holy Spirit's presence. And God's voice came and announced who Jesus was. Uh, Could I have the next slide, please, Rebecca? And he said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. This is the climactic point of the story. The revelation that Jesus is the beloved son of God and we're told to listen to him, to obey him. And as suddenly as it happened, it was all over. They were just with Jesus on the mountain. But now they knew that he was the Messiah. And so they said to him, well, why did they say that Elijah must come first? And um, in, I think think it was Luke, I've got it here somewhere, in uh, It was one of them, Matthew or Luke, sorry, I can't see it. You can look it up later. One of them says that Jesus explained that Elijah did come first and the disciples realized that he was talking about John the Baptist. And of course, John the Baptist had preceded Jesus um, and heralded his coming. So they are accepting that he was the Messiah now. And then Jesus poses his own question to get them thinking about what exactly this Messiah was going to be. And he said, why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? Now, Jesus is preparing them for his imminent death. Their idea of a Messiah was the victorious king who'd been prophesied about for centuries, who would free them from their earthly enemies, or so they thought. They still had no clue about the humiliation and suffering that Jesus would go through in order to accomplish the much greater victory, a victory over our spiritual enemies. And he was trying to prepare them for that. And as they came down from the mountain, the disciples are pondering all this, and what he meant by rising from the dead. Finally, we read that he comes down the mountain, 
the crowd see him. And as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now, clearly, there was something very compelling about Jesus that overwhelms people with wonder. On earth, Jesus was fully human, yet fully God. And people may not have been able to get their head around that, but they knew he was compelling and unique, and they thronged to him. Okay, so let's home in now on what relevance this has for us. I stumbled on an article from the Harvard Business Review. It makes me sound really, really scholarly, but it was complete by chance. Um, A secular publication that is fascinatingly relevant to what we're looking at today. Now, apparently, people have done experiments to see the social advantages of wonder. Of course they have. (laughs) Predictably, they don't put God into the equation, but the parallels are obvious for us. So just listen to this. This is what they say. One experimental group, when asked to draw pictures of themselves after having an awe experience, literally drew themselves smaller in size. Such an effect has been termed unselfing. This shift has big benefits. As you tap into something larger and your sense of self shrinks, so too do your mental chatter and your worries. At the same time, your desire to connect with and help others increases. People who experience awe also report higher levels of overall life satisfaction and well-being. So, we are at our best when we are in awe and wonder. We become more at peace with the world and ourselves, and we become more relational and compassionate. Well, I never... It's like we were designed for a relationship with God or something, isn't it? (laughs) When you first encounter Jesus, it is a pretty awe-inspiring first meeting as you realise he is your God and the implications of that. But often, exactly like Jesus teaches in the parable of the sower, what we first hear and understand becomes choked with the weeds of the concerns of this world, with our own desires, with the distractions of the here and now, and our spiritual growth is stunted or even completely strangled. The wonder fizzles out, our interest wanes. So how do we rediscover the awesomeness of Jesus? How do we get back to the heart of our relationship with him? Well, let's see what God says. In Mark's account of Jesus' life on earth, there are two times when there is the audible voice of God that speaks over Jesus. The first is at his baptism. Could we have the the next slide up, please, uh, Rebecca? And uh, God speaks over Jesus, and he says, um, it says, A voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's the first time he spoke over Jesus. The second time he spoke is the one we've just looked at. And a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. God could have said anything. He only spoke twice for us to witness over Jesus. And this is what he said. He said that he loved him, that he was his son. And the implications of us, of of, of that, are huge. What these 
climactic moments of Jesus' life is all about is love. If you're boiled down life as a believer, life as a Jesus follower, to one word, it would be love. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was glorified and honoured. He revealed that he was fully God, but there is a parallel mount, Mount Calvary, that tells the story of his love for us. It was here Jesus was humiliated and punished and he revealed that he was fully man. Just look at the contrast. On the Mount of Transfiguration, his clothes were dazzling white. On Mount Calvary, he was stripped naked and covered in blood. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was clothed in light. On the Mount of Calvary, the earth was shrouded in darkness. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter wanted to build a shelter for Jesus. On Mount Calvary, Peter was denying he even knew Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Father God is there too, speaking words of love over his son. On Mount Calvary, God is silent and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We put the Mount of Transfiguration together with the Mount Calvary and we have the awesome revelation of Jesus, fully God and fully man. The creator of all that is good and beautiful and blessed, taking on himself all that is bad and ugly and cursed so that we would be united with him, that we too can become the beloved child and are set free to love. Wow, now there's the wonder. You see, God could have stepped into our world and overwhelmed us with his power. Kazam, thunder, lightning, rock splitting. No one would have a choice but to acknowledge him. We'd be bulldozed into submission. But instead, he came quietly as Jesus in the form of an ordinary human to woo us back with his love inviting us to choose him out of love. Now, I know that as soon as I start talking about God's loving us, some of you will just start zoning out. Yeah, yeah. God loves me. Bloody, bloody, blah. Tell me something new. Because what we do is we file as a fact into our intellectual knowing that God loves us alongside how long to boil an egg, and which way to put our trousers on. It becomes just familiarity without ongoing experience kills the wonder of Jesus. So I just invite you now to listen and take to heart the following truths I'm going to speak to you. Now these are designed to enable you to encounter or to re-encounter his love for you. Some of you might like to close your eyes, but I'd invite you just to listen. The awesome God of the universe knows your name. He numbers every hair on your head. He loves you tenderly. God Almighty, the creator, the one who spoke and the heavens were spread out, the one who gave us breath and gave us life, he loves us tenderly. He loves you as his own special child, uniquely loves you, 
uniquely created good things for you to walk into. He's vitally concerned with everything about you. Not only does he love us, but while we were sinners, while we were in rebellion, while we were walking away from him, he said, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going to live as one of my children. I'm going to live a sinless life. And then I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice so that my children won't have to be punished, won't ever have to be apart from me. I'm going to forgive all their sins and heal all their diseases and bring them home to me for all eternity. That's the good news. That's the wonder. God is for you. He's not against you. He's not angry with you. He loves you. Now, whether you're new to the wonder of God's love or you want to renew it, the key is being intentional about encountering him. Now, I don't know if any of you are familiar with those programs on telly where people are reunited with, for the very first time with their birth family. And um, you see somebody, for example, being reunited with their long-lost dad who they've never met before. Now, the first meeting is usually full of tears and smiles and wonder as this is actually happening. But although they're blood relatives, they are strangers to each other. It will take years and a lot of intentionality for them to find out about each other, to build trust and history together, to create a meaningful and personal relationship. And that is like us and God. Now, the only significant and wonderful difference is unlike earthly fathers, who are often decidedly less than awesome, God is perfect. So the more we find out about him, the more we'll find that we can trust him. And the more we'll see he has an amazing personality. So the more we'll love him. It's all about relationship. That's what I end with today. Now, relationships take time. Out of quantity time comes quality time. And the best way to get to know someone is to spend time with them, to talk to them, to listen to them and do things with them. So at the risk of, of uh, trying to teach granny to suck eggs, if you want to live in the wonder of Jesus, I would invite you to make sure you are setting aside regular time every day to sit in his presence, to worship, to talk to him, to read his word, the Bible, and surrender yourself. Or to walk in nature and look for the creator behind the creation. And none of this is just to tick a spiritual box or to be, uh, get more intellectual understanding, or to get brownie points with God, the aim is to actually encounter him. Could I have the slide up, please? Oh, brilliant. She's still, it's all right, the aim. Yeah. Um, hear, God said to you, hear God say to you, you are my child whom I love. Learn to accept that you are completely and unconditionally loved. It might feel a bit awkward, like it did for Peter, and you might want to rush out and do stuff, but stay with it. Stay with him. Stay getting to know him. And if you want to add an extra dose of wonder to your walk every so often, 
I'd recommend that you read Christian biographies. There are so many people that have been so touched by Jesus that they, their lives have become book-worthy. And they are awe-inspiring, these stories. And if you want to borrow any, I have lots, so I'll give them to you. Um, but that's a really good wonder boost. And in your small groups, ask each other, what has God done this week? How has he shown himself real to you? Um, keep stoking that wonder in your life. Um, I want to ask a final question very quickly. I, I, I know I'm a bit over time. Um, but the brief said, how does Jesus' life 2,000 plus years ago shape ours today? Um, in brief, that's up to us. There have been people who have been absolutely enthralled by Jesus over the years. And because of them, there's hospitals, hospitals, schools, the abolition of slavery, social housing, um, racial equality. I mean, Jesus is teaching, if people take it seriously, reform society and it will reform your life. But it is up to us. We have to make the effort to build a relationship with God for ourselves so that our lives are transformed. And it's not a case of, oh, I'm a Christian, I have my ticket to heaven. It's a case of ongoing repentance, changing our thinking, changing our behavior. Because yes, he does love us exactly as we are, but too much to let us stay like that. And what's the point of going down the mountain unless we are transfigured, unless we have been changed from one degree of glory to another? Because as we go down to help people, we will be exactly as they are. But if we've spent time with Jesus, we will have his power and his love to give a broken world. So that's um, all I'm going to say today. Thank you so much for listening so well. And I'll end with God's words to us. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him.